All right, hello, hello, and welcome to the Wayward Podcast, where the word paves the way. I am your host, Jonathan Robinson, and I am very glad to have this opportunity to speak with you today. On our last episode, we didn't so much start our Bible story series as take a a first step towards that series. Uh, If you haven't listened to it already, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that first episode. I titled it, Just Whose Story Is This? And that first episode was mostly about trying to get our posture of heart and mind right. Because when we sit with a Bible in our hands and we think about the history and the journey its story took to get into our hands, it's really a humbling thing to be able to receive and read God's Word. It is a thing that inspires wonder and can create within us a heart of worship of our God who loves us enough to give us His story. So, as long as we are approaching the scriptural story with a posture of humility, I believe we may be better positioning ourselves to truly receive what God is trying to say. So the passage we started off with to begin our Bible story series was, of course, Genesis 1.1. And one of the primary points we examined and elaborated on was that the presence of God precedes the story. And that point is crucial to establish, because without the presence of God as the pre-existing, preeminent, primary reality, nothing would be able to proceed from there or be produced from there. Without the pre-existing presence of God, nothing would be able to be brought into subsequent existence. So it's necessary to acknowledge that the God who abides outside of time possesses sovereignty. So that when it comes time to bring our perceived reality into existence, God alone possesses the sovereignty and supremacy to do so. So that was the establishing framework. The presence of God precedes the reality that shall emerge. And now, today, we get to move forward and elaborate just a little bit more on that framework. And uh, last time we we read just one verse, but today we'll read that again and we'll also include verse two. So um, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to, you know, tease everything out uh, by, by moving so slowly. I am just trying to move in a way that is unhurried and in a a way that has the opportunity to appreciate all of the details that can be richly found in the creation story in that Genesis 1 passage. There's just so much there. And Um, I don't want to be in a hurry. I don't want us to be in a hurry as we go through it. So um, we're, I'm, you know, just taking our time and trying to, uh, you know, just kind of look around, you know, 
and uh, just appreciate everything that is there. And by increasing or expanding our view of the initial imagery of Genesis, I believe that it will help firm up our footing as we continue to step into this story. So today, if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 again, verse 1 again, but also this time, verse 2. So uh, let's read that. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, if we were to break this passage down into thematic pieces, I think there are three possible focuses here that I think are worth exploring. The first one is the connotation of create, the, the, the hidden meaning of the word create. Two, the condition of pre-creation. And third, the choreography of the creator. So those are three possible focuses I think can be found in this passage. So we're going to explore those individually. So first, in the connotation of creation, we are trying to get to what is meant by create. How do we usually think of creation? For a long time, the modern church has viewed this creating act as bringing the materials of this world into existence from out of nothing. But as students of scripture who prioritize context, the question that we probably should be asking is, how would the original audience of this text think about this creating act. Now, I've recently had the opportunity to listen to a few lectures and uh, read through some of the uh, writings of uh, Dr. John Walton. Uh, he's a New Testament professor. Well, I'm sorry, let me correct that. He is not a new... <laughs> That's the exact opposite of what he is, I think. Uh, he's a professor on uh, ancient cosmology and ancient Near Eastern thought. And... Um, uh, that's what he focuses on mainly, and all this stuff that I've just been kind of kind of taking in, you know, a lot of it has been really helpful reminders of things that I've known before, but also it has been very educational for a lot of new things that I've never known. And one of his core arguments that uh, that I've been really trying to pay attention to and appreciate is that people of the ancient world did not view existence in material terms, but in functional. For example, the people of the ancient world, they would not look at the sun and think of its existence in terms of its material properties, you know, like, you know, gas and heat and such, but they would view it by virtue of the role that the sun has in this sphere of existence. Particularly in the way that it functions for humankind and human society. So, in the ancient world, especially on the scale of the creation story that we are examining, to create something means 
to give something a function or a role in an ordered system. And Walton illustrates this by citing several different examples of ancient Near Eastern literature from the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, all of whom had origin stories that featured deities manifesting creative function within the cosmos or the world around them. Now, I imagine some listeners might want to point out to me that those other pieces of literature are not the uniquely inspired word of God. Fair enough. I get that, and I'm fine with that distinction. But one of the other observations that Walton really makes is that when we look throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures at how the Hebrew word for create is used, usually in its clearest context, it's not involving materials being brought into existence, but function that is being given to that which already exists. So if Walton's arguments are correct, then there is a great deal of support for the idea in Scripture that the Israelite people viewed God's creating acts in terms of functionality. So with that idea in mind, perhaps it might be useful to paraphrase Genesis 1.1 as saying, when God began to give function to the heavens and the earth. And I think this idea of functionality it makes even more sense when we move on to verse 2. Because in verse 2, what we encounter is something badly in need of function. So this brings us to the second focus of the passage, which uh, is the condition of pre-creation. Now, I own a older version of the New Revised Standard Version Bible. I've had it for a lot of years. I've enjoyed it, gotten a lot of uh, a lot out of it. But in that version, they translate Genesis 1-2 as the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. And that phrase, formless void, has long been a traditional way of translating this verse. And it makes sense because, like I said before, the modern church has viewed creation in a material sense. So formless void is an understandable translation because its, its connotation subscribes to a material view of existence. But if we look at the New Revised Version's recently updated translation, that once formless void phrase is now rendered in verse 2 as the earth was complete chaos. And this translation choice is one that is more deliberately trying to subscribe to the worldview more in line with the ancient Israelites in ancient Near East. And it's a view that sees creation in functional terms. Only in this case, here in verse 2, what is being described is cosmic dysfunction. It's like the raw materials of existence really are not here existing in an organized form, but disorganized 
in their current state here, there is no capacity for productivity or an expectation of fruitfulness. It's like the overall picture of existence is one of disorder. And the same thing with the darkness that is mentioned, covering the face of the deep. Now, I don't want to go too far into this because I'm kind of avoiding spoilers for a future upcoming conversation. Um, But based on the way that the author of Genesis will discuss the lesser lights and the greater lights, I'm thinking that the author's use of darkness here might similarly be a reference to how in this dysfunctional darkness, there were no other beings capable of giving or manifesting function or order. Basically, this darkness is an indication of the lack of a life giver. This darkness is what happens when there is no life giver present. And I think the author is starting off the creation story with this problem of cosmic dysfunction and absence of life in order to reveal the presence of the one who will give existence its proper function and role. And so that brings us to the passage's third focus, the choreography of the creator. Now, let me just read verses 1 and 2 again, all together now. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, you've probably heard this before, but in the Hebrew and the Greek languages, the word wind can also be translated as spirit. And while the connotation of spirit is important here, wind works really well also, because wind is both a disruptor and a shaper. Wind is a force that can come in and shake things up. Only in this case, what needs shaking up is disorder. It's as if the dysfunction and the disorder is about to be disrupted. It's about to be shaken up. But wind can also give a distinctive shape to things. If you look a lot, if you look at um, a lot of the geography in the American Southwest, you will see a lot of really cool rock formations that have been given shape over time by wind. So wind can both shake things up and shape things going forward. So yes. Wind is a helpful image here, but again, the connotation of spirit, particularly God's spirit, can characterize this specific wind as presence permeated with personhood. So once again, we get to encounter the wonderful presence of God, bringing us full circle from where we started. Uh, before, in our previous episode, again, go listen to it, Um, before we were contemplating 
the presence of God as that sovereign personhood that exists beyond the realm of our perceived reality here. But now we see the presence of God is also not absent from our realm. That God inserts himself into this place. Specifically, the presence of God places himself right in the middle of this dysfunction and disorder. The Bible's opening lines tell the story of our God who puts himself into an inhospitable environment in order to bring function and cohesiveness. So right off the bat, the children of Israel who would have been telling this story or reading this story for the first time or the 100th time, and we ourselves as readers get to see or be reminded that our God is a God who defies disorder and dysfunction by bringing function and ordering chaos and causing cohesiveness. In an existence cluttered by dysfunction and darkness and barrenness, God reveals himself as the giver of life who will bring about fruitfulness. So having quickly explored these three thematic focuses in these two verses, we need to ask, Where has the story so far taken us? Or more contextually, what would this story so far have given to the original Israelite audience? And the simplest answer is that it gave ancient Israel the beginning of a worldview. It's only two verses or one sentence long, but it presents to the Israelite people the introduction of an origin story. Not yet the origin story of their people, but the origin story of the world they inhabit. More specifically, this introduction establishes the prime reality that the Lord God who saved them in Egypt is, in fact, the choreographer and creator of cohesiveness of the world they are living in. There is, of course, going to be much more to this origin story, but for right now, the main point being established in this introduction is that everything else that emerges throughout this origin story stems from and revolves around the Lord God who sovereignly shapes it. And this point is absolutely crucial to Israel's worldview. They need to know that the God they are in covenant with is the sovereign God who is capable of sustaining them and this world while keeping his covenant promises. Revealing God's cohesive creativity in the beginning helps assure them that The reality they are living in every day is securely governed by God's goodness and grace. That's the prime reality upon which everything else in Scripture's story is based. So, 
<sighs> Having looked at those themes and explored how they provided ancient Israel with a worldview or the beginnings of a worldview, let us now take a few moments to suggest how we too might live in light of this worldview. These are just suggestions. There's likely several more that I'm missing, but these are just a few. Uh, learn from them, take them, um, wrestle with them. Um, and, and, th and that really should be a point in itself, wrestling and contemplating. There is so much in this in this creation story that invites us to really do, it really doesn't invite us to do anything except to contemplate, to, to wrestle with and contemplate. And the creation story is one of the, I, in my opinion, the creation story is probably one of the best passages that you can sit with in a uh, sort of a devotional setting and just sit with and prayerfully ponder on and just, you know, just sit it and l just let its content uh, surround you, envelop you, saturate you, permeate you, flood your mind with its wonders. Because those wonders just really open us up to what God is doing. And so, yeah, uh, just contemplating is probably one of the main points or one of the, you know, main application points when we come to this passage. But here's a couple of others that we might uh, suggest. One, let's perceive God's presence as a fact. And I phrase it like that, as a fact. I phrase it like that because there are so many moments in our lives when, where and when we will struggle with whether or not we believe if God is really there or if God is present. Like the darkness that is mentioned in this passage, sometimes darkness in life will become so saturated that we will be tempted to conclude that it is an indication that there is no life giver. And to take this a step further, such conclusions can easily lead us into alternative worldview commitments and subsequent deconstruction of faith. And I think this, the trajectory of the trajectory that our Western worldviews have taken over the last few centuries is proof of this. Once in 18th century individuals and society began to view God's presence as something that was entirely distant from our universe and our world, it gradually became much easier to deny that God's presence even existed. And if you go back uh, into like, you know, the enlightenment and or that age of reason kind of conversation or that period, and you begin to look at how worldviews kind of, uh, kind of, uh, almost kind of like began to fall like dominoes in a way, it all kind of started with, um, uh, the uh, deism. It was ref it was that belief that or that perception that God was not intimate, that God was not near, that God was not close, but that God was some far off being who had no interaction with creation or with the universe anymore. That God was just far out, and we are here to manage 
what there is to manage. That was kind of the the first step that was taken away from the Christian worldview or the scriptural worldview, I should say. And that was once that that began to kind of uh, kick in one by one through the next couple of decades and, you know, centuries, different worldviews kind of began to fall like dominoes to the point where prime reality was kind of like whatever you want it to be. And that's kind of like where we are right now. But here in this opening passage of scripture's introduction, the author deliberately starts the story by making it clear for all readers that God is not distant, that God is not far off. This God is here. Our God is near. When we begin to perceive God's presence as a fact, our ability to see things or to manage what we are feeling or to manage what we think we are seeing or perceiving becomes strengthened by the fact of God's presence that we have anchored our realities to. We need not fear when God's presence is declared as a fact and held on to as a fact, a revealed fact. Another, uh, another way to look at, uh, to live in light of this worldview is that we perceive God's presence as prime reality. Uh, when the author of Genesis deliberately starts the story by making it clear that God is both prime reality and can be the object of our of our perceived reality, it's it's really a wondrous example of worshipful audacity to proclaim that our God is the summation of all things, or that our God is the origin of all things, is a bold statement. It means dismissing and disregarding a whole host of other things or beings that regularly compete for the title of prime reality. The author is really kind of throwing down the gauntlet to other belief systems or to other people groups and declaring that our God is the singular reality worth orienting our whole lives around. To have anything or anyone in our lives that is deserving of being the object of our worship means that object has to be eminently supreme. And the author of Genesis is claiming for all Israel and future believers that God is that sole sovereign object worthy of worship. The one who exists as the constant center of our reality. And a third um, possibility for living light of this, living in light of this worldview, is that we learn we must learn to perceive God's creation as possessing function and cohesiveness. Um, around uh, you, might, you've, I imagine you've heard of this one. Um, 
around the first or second centuries uh, AD, there was a little belief that, or a, kind of a heresy, but a little belief that began to emerge. It was called Gnosticism, and it began to emerge and enter into uh, Christian teachings, and it began to twist up a number of things. And one of those twistings was the idea that um, only in the celestial plane, the higher, far off celestial plane, with its abstract spirituality, only there what dwelled purity and harmony. While here, the material world that we live in was impure, and that the wise and knowledgeable would do well to avoid those impurities. And, you know, even before, even before Gnosticism kind of emerged, and especially after and everything, um, when we look at the world around us and how messed up it repeatedly has a tendency to be, I can really see how this Gnostic belief system may have taken root and shaped a great many views that are still with us. But in the background of all that noise, the author of Genesis reveals that despite the mess we have grown accustomed to, the world we live in possesses function and order and cohesiveness because, because God infused it, it with function. We have to learn to not confuse the messiness of creation with the design of creation. The messiness of creation is one thing, but the design of creation is God's thing. Where there was dysfunction, God brought function. Where there was disorder, God brought cohesion. And where there was barrenness, God would bring fruitfulness. While it is very easy to often lament what is the world coming to, the author of Genesis helps clarify what God designed the world to be. There is a design and functionality that is divinely infused and applied into this world that goes beyond the messier outworkings we are normally used to seeing. Fourth, a fourth thing, and this is probably more, I guess when you kind of think about application or what application is supposed to be, this might be more in line with, uh, you know, what, what we think of application, but we learn to perceive and receive this worldview through the practice of adoration and thanksgiving. Practicing adoration and thanksgiving of God opens our minds and spirits up to the permeating presence of God and invites God to shape and form himself in us. All this talk of worldviews, it's not, it's not merely intellectual assent. It's about aligning our minds with God at work in this world. Adoring God and offering thanksgiving through audible praises and prayers, it floods our perceptions with wonder and awakens our lives through worship. I've said 
before how my goal through this Bible story series is to cultivate and nurture within us all a worldview of wonder and worship. Well, between our last episode and this episode, we have taken our first step into the scriptural story. A step that has consisted of only two verses. But within those two verses are the makings of a worldview that will open us up to all that God has been shaping from the beginning and longs to share with us. So with this introduction to the story accomplished, we can now begin to get more into the more of the specific functions God infused into his creation. And that's where we will start moving next week. So until then, I hope you all have a blessed week. I hope you get to contemplate all that God formed, all that God decided to give formation to. I hope that you get to spend some time in Genesis 1 this week and just kind of allow yourself to wrestle with and contemplate it all and allow it to just flood your mind. Um, I challenge you to do that. I invite you to do that. It's a, it is a blessing. So thank you so very much for joining me here today on the Wayward Podcast, where the word paves the way. This is my story. This is my song. Raising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song.